I went to the back to replace my battery on my lapel mic, and while I was there, Don Landis, our usher, told us that there's 187 people here today, which is why it's so crowded in this room, which is marvelous. And then Don said to me, "Word must have gotten out that you were uh, word must have gotten out that you were coming that you weren't still on vacation." So that's why all the people are here. Uh, this week, Bob Kobe and I uh, met. Bob Kobe, our treasurer, and I, and we, we met and we spent some time going over Grace's budget for the coming year. It was, it was not an exciting conversation, but it was made pleasant. Bob is a gracious uh, man. We had a, a, a fine uh, morning together. Uh, we were reviewing categories. If you have a budget, you have categories in your budget, and you have to assign things to categories. And we were talking about two different categories related to the building, uh, specifically uh, maintenance and property improvements. It's in our budget. What's the difference between an expense related to maintenance and an expense related to a property improvement? Well, um, maintenance, it's not a difficult issue. I don't think it, it, maintenance is what it sounds like. Maintenance uh, is involved in taking care of the building, uh, cleaning it, re- replacing things that, 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 that break in the building. Property improvements are changes that you make to the building, additions, remodeling, paint, uh, more major projects. There's another difference, though, between maintenance and property improvements. One's a lot more exciting than the other, isn't it? In your budget, wouldn't you rather allocate more money to property improvements than to maintenance? Which is more exciting, buying a new carpet or buying the vacuum cleaner to clean it? Or a new table or the polish to dust it. Or a new lamp or the light bulb to to put in it. It's not as exciting at all, is it? But maintenance is crucial. You have to do it. Uh, We need to put a new roof over this part of the building sometime in the next uh, year or so. And we would be foolish... Uh, not to do it. I, I can think of other things that I would rather use the money for that it's going to take to put a roof over this building. I, Todd and Debbie Kramlick in Germany need a new roof for their house. I'd rather give the money to them to build a roof than to put one over here. But if we don't, we're fools, right? You have to do the maintenance work. But you know that. And I imagine that you also know that maintenance is not just for buildings. Maintenance is a word that could be applied to skills, too. Some of you have skill-intensive jobs, and maybe every year you need to recertify your skills to demonstrate that you haven't lost your edge, that you're maintaining the level of skill that you need to have your job. Or you need to uh, uh, have uh, skill assessments at school. Your teachers don't call them skill assessments. They call them tests. Uh, and, and your teacher wants to know what you're learning and, and if you're retaining what you've already learned in class. Are you maintaining your uh, level of academic excellence? Some of you work hard in your job in maintaining your contacts. You, you keep in touch with your customers every now and then to make sure that they're still satisfied or you touch base with men and women to whom you can go for uh, uh, help with problems or counsel. You maintain contacts I am most interested this morning in the work that is necessary to maintain relationships. Uh, Every relationship needs maintenance. Marriages need maintenance. One of the books uh, I've read recently on marriage uses the analogy of taking out the trash. You need to take out the trash 
in your relationship, in your marriage, and let the, let the garbage go. Friendships need maintenance. You need to maintain your relationship with your parents, with your kids. Uh, uh, and relationships at church need maintaining too. Um, I spend time as part of my responsibilities at church uh, visiting or greeting um, uh, and meeting with, with visitors to our church. And one of the things that, that they consistently tell me about the congregation is that our church is warm, and this morning it's warm. It's warm. Uh, we could turn the fan on, maybe. Is the fan on? It is. Okay, well, it's not going to get any better. All right. Uh, it, our church is warm and, and welcoming. It's, it's, it's a, a friendly place. It always makes me glad to hear, and I hear it all the time from people who visit. Some of you, I, I watch you greet new people and welcome them, and some of you are really a lot better at it than I am. But, but this is a gift that you use to express. If you're here this morning and you are visiting with us, I hope you will find or you have already found out uh, that this to be true, that, that our congregation is warm and welcoming. Understand something. We're not that way because we're trying to be nice or we're merely being polite. We're that way because we believe that how we treat one another is a reflection of the reality of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We strive to be warm and welcoming to everyone who comes because by this, Jesus said, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And yet, the ma- maintaining that warmth in a group of people, in a body of believers, is exceedingly difficult. There's a cost to be borne in that. And, and if we don't pay that cost, we face the risk of our relationships that are warm but shallow, or, or friendships that are cold and, and distant. Paul himself, the apostle, was very concerned about the maintenance of the love of the brothers and sisters in Ephesus. He he was very concerned about it, so much so that he prayed about the love that was in the church. He prayed about it earnestly. And for the next three weeks, we're going to carefully study Paul's prayer for the love of the church in Ephesus. And I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. As I have mentioned before, everybody in this room has a vested interest in the quality of the love in this congregation. Whether you're here as a long-term member, whether you're here as uh, 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 someone who's attended our church for a while, even if you're visiting, your hope is that this would be a kind, gracious place. It's important to us because it's related very closely, again, to our relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, and the reality of who he is. Ephesians 3, verse 14, is where we're going to look this morning. Uh, but while we're settling in the text, I want to remind you of some of the context of this book. By the time we're finished with Ephesians, one of my hopes for you is that you, can think you will be able to think your way through the book of Ephesians. Uh, if I were to right now ask you to think about how you get home from the church you will be able to, in your mind, imagine the roads and the turns and the sights that you'll see as you get home. I want you to be able to do that with the book of Ephesians. So let's think about, again, this book. The book opens in chapter 1 with this benediction. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he blesses God, and he gives praise to God, and in the process of it, he describes the gospel, the gospel that is God-sized. It's as big as the Trinity itself, as Paul gives praise to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in chapter 1, speaking about God's 
grace and his mercy and his love and his power. Then he ends in chapter 1, he prays for God's power to be known by the church. He wants us to know the God whose gospel we celebrate. In chapter 2, he talks about how that gospel is applied specifically to us. In the first 10 verses, to us as individuals. And in the the second part of chapter 2, to us as a body. How does the gospel overcome the issues that divide us? And Ephesians, the specific issues were ethnic tensions between Gentiles and Jews. And Paul says, God, in his grace, has brought us together and he's put us into a new temple, a new building where God lives. That moves him to pray. He's going to pray on that basis. He's so overwhelmed with this thought of the the church being this temple. Paul's going to pray for the church that that it would be a place of love because God dwells here. But before he does, he interrupts himself in chapter 3. He's this long tangent, this parenthesis, where Paul talks about the church and, and why the church is worth suffering for. Paul's in prison, and he's in prison for the unity of the church. And he writes him and he says, I don't want you to be concerned about the fact that I am suffering because the church is the manifestation of the wisdom of God. It's the repository of the treasures of Christ. It's the message, it's formed by the message that is revealed by the Spirit itself. The church is worth fighting for. It's his parenthesis. And now finally he turns himself, himself to prayer in verse 14. Look with me here at Paul, what he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Uh, His concern here is for the love in the body. And this morning, we're going to talk together about the roots of Christian love. What is the source of Christian love? Where does it come from? Unless you're connected to the roots, your love may be nothing more than just being nice or just being polite. Christian love, congregational love, is robust, it's real, it's gritty. It's hard like steel, it's soft like velvet. It it needs all of the zeal that we associate with 24-year-old young single men and all the wisdom that we attribute to 84-year-old widows. That's what Christian love needs. And And this is our desire. This is what we want to see exploding in our congregation, this sort of love that is rooted in what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians 3. Uh, This love finds its source in three branches, Trinitarian branches, like the gospel, like so much of this epistle and the gospel itself. Christian love, first of all, must be rooted in the power of God the Father. It must be rooted in the power of God the Father. You have to be connected to God the Father or your love will be wimpy and timid. Now, look with me again at verse 14. It says, we're going to walk just slowly through this, uh, these three verses, these first three verses. 
For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom His whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Verse 15 is a challenging verse. And Paul makes a play on words here that doesn't translate really well into English. And this verse doesn't seem immediately relevant. From whom the whole family, his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. What does that mean? Paul here is affirming God's sovereignty, his authority, his power. Uh, there are actually two things that we could take from this verse. Uh, one of them is maybe a bit tangential. Uh, verse 15 reminds us uh, of a subject that's actually going to come up again in chapter 5. It speaks here about the nature of the family. That's what verse 15 in part is about, the nature of the family. The family itself flows from God Himself. Uh, more specifically, fatherhood. Fatherhood itself was created by God. Fatherhood was created by God so that we would understand the relationship that God the Father has with God the Son and so that we would understand how God the Father wants to know us, how to be the sort of relationship we're supposed to have with God. Um, I don't know. God the Father has been the Father from all eternity. I don't know what, before He created the family, God the Father called Himself in relation to God the Son, but that relationship, whatever its titles, always existed, and God took that pattern and He made it in human beings in the family. Now, usually we think about this the other way around. We usually talk, have you ever heard dads, have you ever heard anybody say this to you? Um, your children will get their ideas about God from you. Has anybody ever said that to you? I think I have said that to you before. That, that may be true, but the emphasis of this passage is not from human beings to God, but from God to human beings. The family was created to display God's character, and human fathers uh, are to learn how to father like the Father. Everybody, every single one of us in this room falls short of it in, in some way, but this is our calling because every family derives its nature from the fatherhood of God. But verse 15 is, is not just about the nature of the family, it's, it's primarily about God's authority and it comes through in the naming rights that are inherent in this passage. God names. He gives names. He names every family in heaven and on earth. And this is a reflection of His sovereignty, of His authority. <laughs> I was playing this week with my son a little bit, and I said to him, tell me again, what's your name? And he said to me, my name is Luke Hudson Deveni. I said, that is a fine name. I said, where'd you get that name, Luke Hudson Deveni? He said, God gave it to me. <laughs> I said, really? This is news to me. I said... How do you know that God gave you your name? He said, because God made me. He gave me my name. A better theologian than he knows. In the opening chapters of, of Genesis, God creates the animals and is a reflection of the authority that he gives to Adam to rule under God. He gives Adam the task of naming all of the animals. Naming something is a reflection of authority. And after the fall, Adam expressed loving leadership toward his wife and he expressed faith in God's promises by naming her Eve, the mother of all living. The right to name is an expression of authority. You should be careful, uh, uh, men, about the names you give your children. 
not the names that you write on their birth certificate. I'm talking about what you call them. Do you know somebody who's who's foolish enough to to call his children derogatory names and nicknames? Hey, dummy, or uh, blockhead, slowpoke, lazy. If you're sitting here thinking that it's a good idea to call them dummy because they're dumb, you're the blockhead in the room. Okay? You call your children what you want them to be. Uh, call your daughters beautiful. They, they long for, um, uh, for you to call them beautiful. Uh, call them sweetheart, precious. Call your sons Tiger, champ, a strong, bold, hearty nickname, something strong. Because that's the type of men that you want them to be. <laughs> I probably shouldn't tell you this, but um, <laughs> Kathy has a friend who had, had a son named uh, Preston. His son's name was Preston, which is a fine name. But this mother nicknamed her son and, and would call over the playground, Pressy, Pressy. Horrible. Might as well put a bonnet on him and send him to the, next, the playground. It's terrible. Call your son something that, that calls them to be strong and, and confident and, 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 and uh, uh, hearty. It's your privilege to name them. Now, before I wander too far from the text, some of you were thinking too late, uh, some of you might wonder about this phrase, the family in heaven. What's the family in heaven that, that he's talking about? Most scholars think that this is a reference to angels as, as members of God's family. Um, God's authority extends just beyond, beyond just human families, beyond just nuclear families. This is not just about human families, it's, it's about um, all families. This is why it's uh, appropriate for Paul to think about this in terms of the church, because the church is a family too. So he is kneeling before the Father who has authority over every family, angels in heaven, your family, and the church. God's authority, here he starts. That, that's verse 15. In verse 16, he affirms, he, he, he prays here in verse 16 about the glorious riches of God. I pray that out of His glorious riches. How many times does Paul mention God's riches in this book? Next time you read through Ephesians, circle or underline the word riches every time you see it. It's abundant. God is rich in mercy, He's rich in grace, He's rich in power, He's rich in glory. There's no stinginess to God. There's no limitations to God. You have to remember that as you read the rest of the book of Ephesians because if if you don't remember that, the commands that are coming in the rest of Ephesians will crush you. Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are angry. That's, that's a crushing command. That, there are people in this room who, who describe themselves as angry people. I, I did not know my capacity for angry, anger until I had a child. And then I had two more of them. <laughs> Don't sin in anger, Paul. <laughs> Paul, I have no problem with sinning in anger. I, my only problems are being angry at the right time and the right people for the right reason. Other than that, I have it down. I'm glad God knows about God's rich. I'm glad Paul knows about God's riches because all I know is poverty. 
if you don't keep this in mind, glorious grace, riches of mercy, the commands that are to come are going to crush you. His, his prayer, actually, the, the main prayer that he prays in verse 16 is, I pray that out of His glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being. This is not the only time that Paul has prayed about God's power. If you flip back to chapter 1, verse 19, it says, Paul wants the people to know His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him in His right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul, in Ephesians 1, he says, I want you to know God's power. In Ephesians 3, Paul prays that God would unleash that power in your life. It's resurrection power. It's the power that raised Jesus from the grave and seated Him at God's right hand. This may come as a surprise to you, but in order for you to be a genuinely loving person, you need this sort of power. You see here why Paul is talking about more than just being nice or more than just being polite. You can train a dog to be polite. But if you want to love someone in Christian congregational love, it's going to take this sort of power, this resurrection power to be unleashed in your life. Now, why is that? What sort of standard is this that the Bible is setting for us that we need this level of power? Isn't, isn't Paul, when he says love one another, just telling us to be a little bit nicer to each other? Obviously not. Why do we need this level of power? That's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it. Hang on to it. We're going to talk about it more in a minute. Christian love is rooted in the power of God the Father. Secondly, though, it is rooted in the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's rooted in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Paul here is talking about how God's power is unleashed in our lives by the Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit does in the Bible. The Holy Spirit takes the promises of God and the work of Jesus Christ and it works. He works it out in our lives. That's what the Spirit does. And he wants, uh, Paul is praying that the Spirit would be active in your inner being. Now, he uses that phrase, inner being, to distinguish power from physical strength. This is moral strength or spiritual strength as opposed to chopping wood in half strength. Okay? This is inner strength that he has in mind. And when Paul uses this phrase, inner being, elsewhere in the Bible, it says that your inner being is, our inner beings are dead and lifeless. Um, you have seen a perfect image of what Paul is talking about here in this passage in recent weeks. Um, every year I notice that in addition to Christmas lights, there are more and more of those inflatable objects for Christmas in people's lawns. Um, they're lit, they're blown up at night, they, they look very nice. During the day, not so much. When people unplug them, they turn the, the blowers off and there they lay on the ground. <laughs> Sometimes when I drive by houses that have a lot of these things on the ground, I, the only image that comes to my mind is last night there was a Christmas war and Rudolph shot Frosty and the corpses are there on the ground. There's been a Christmas war and they're dead. It's the Christmas battlefield on the ground. This is your life without the Spirit. Without your Spirit, you are lifeless. But with the Spirit, you have form. You have 
uh, uh, the ability to uh, fulfill these commands, the presence of the Spirit. Uh, I recently read a a short story about a a group of men and women who were exploring the Mariana Trench. Mariana Trench is the, the deepest part in the ocean. The machines that you need to be in in order to go that deep in the ocean are, are impressive. The, the pressure down there is so immense that they take submarines that are uh, especially designed and, and plated with inches and inches of steel so that you can survive that tremendous pressure down in the depths of the ocean. Because they're so uh, uh, covered with steel, those machines are cramped, they're uncomfortable, they're unwieldy. And if you ever have the opportunity to dive in one of them and though and get to those depths, you will discover near the bottom of the ocean amazing creatures, fish that are not cramped, that are not uncomfortable, and that are not uh, unwieldy. They're supple and they glide through the water. Well, how, how can that be in those depths? What scientists have discovered is that the reason those fish can move with such ease in those depths of water uh, is because the pressure inside of them is equal to the pressure outside of them. There's two ways to survive at the bottom of the ocean. You can have an equal pressure inside to the outside pressure or you can armor yourself so much that the outside pressure doesn't touch you. We live in this broken world. It has fallen. We're surrounded by people who do sinful, broken things. And we do them ourselves. And when Paul prays about the Spirit and strengthening your inner being, he's talking about the inner pressure of your life being equal to or even surpassing the outer pressure that comes. You need the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the type of love that Paul is commanding. It requires God-sized power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, which means that when you reach the point when you feel unable to extend it further, you're just at the beginning when God's power can begin working in your life. Christian love, congregational love, it's rooted in the power of God the Father, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the pattern of Jesus Christ. It's rooted, thirdly, in the pattern of Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word dwell here is very important in the text. It's related to the temple imagery and language that he's been using in chapter 2 where a temple being built and now God, Christ is going to take up residence. He's going to dwell in that holy house. The Bible describes two ways in which Christ takes up residence in someone's life when they become a follower of Jesus Christ. When you first become a follower of Christ, the Spirit takes up residence in you and Paul in Colossians can write to the church and say, Christ is in you and that is the hope of glory. But this here is is something different. He's speaking about a different type of dwelling. Maybe you could translate verse 17 so that Christ might be at home in your hearts. So that He might be comfortable. So that He might be settled, contented. Let me try to explain this, this phrase a little bit to you. Um, some of you have had an opportunity, most of you I imagine, at some point in time to stay in a hotel room. You walk into the hotel room, you've paid for that hotel room stay, and there you are, and you're, that's where you're going to dwell for a night. But it's not really home, is it? The bed's not comfortable like your bed is. Uh, the, the colors, you, you probably wouldn't decorate like that. And the floor, it's got carpeting on it, but it's as hard as a rock. It's just not 
home. Uh, when we're staying at a hotel, occasionally if we do, my wife likes to watch HGTV. So we turn this, this station on, and they used to, I don't know if they have this show anymore, on HGTV, but there used to be a show called Designed to Sell. People who lived in these homes that they couldn't sell, they were desperate to sell their house, they would invite both a film crew and a work team into their house, and the work team would remodel, or re, uh, re, just not remodel necessarily, but redesign the house so that it would be more attractive to prospective buyers. What's the first thing they do when they go into a house to sell it? They take away all the family photos, and they remove all of your favorite colors. They make the house as generic as possible, so that any potential buyer could imagine themselves moving into that house. It's not your home anymore. It's a generic house. How long did it feel for you to take, when you moved into your house, how long did it take for you to feel that it was your home? Maybe it was hanging a picture. You wanted to hang your family picture in the foyer. And when you hung that here, this is our home now because this is here. This is this thing. For Christ to be at home in your life, it takes resurrection power. It takes the presence of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because naturally Christ is not at home in your heart. Have you ever had a roommate... Some of you have, either a spouse or a roommate. You understand why Christ might not feel at home. If I ask you one simple question. What does clean mean? You had a roommate, and you and your roommate might talk about what clean means. Or you and your spouse probably have different understandings of the word clean. Uh, <laughs> My children have a different understanding than I do of the command, clean your room. Uh, Think of how much different Christ's standards of clean are than yours. You don't have to go far in Ephesians to figure this out or to remember this. Remember, at the beginning of of chapter 3 in Ephesians, uh, beginning of chapter 2, Paul said, you're separated from God. You're dead because of your transgressions and sins. Verse 3 says, Naturally, we are gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Christ is not naturally at home in a, uh, uh, an alienated from God human heart. The last time we visited my in-laws in Buffalo, there was uh, Time Warners, the cable company in western New York. They were advertising their services, their fine cable, their fine high-speed internet service. And one of the gimmicks that they were using in this commercial was, um, everybody can be happy if you've got Time Warner in your house. Because uh, dad can watch television in the den and mom can surf the internet with her iPad in the kitchen and junior can be on his computer playing video games online in his uh, room and and your sister, the daughter, can be uh, on Facebook in the living room and everybody can be happy because Time Warner sends that much signal to your house. That's, That's the gimmick. That's not like I remember watching television when I was a child. Now, I recognize that there are some of you that are uh, uh, older than I am, and you remember when your family had no television at all, uh, but uh, indulge me for a minute. I remember when we had one television in the house, and there were four channels that you could watch on the television. ABC, NBC, CBS, sometimes if it, wasn't, or if it was cloudy enough, PBS, which we didn't want to watch anyway. 
So uh, 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 we would, one television in the room, and believe it or not, this is the hardship. It's unbelievable to me that we had to do this. To change the channel, we had to get up and walk across the room and turn this dial. Oh, work my knuckles to the bone. And, and maybe you had a television like this too. Uh, the dial, it, after a while, it, it would wear out. So for months, we would change television with a pair of pliers. That's how you change. Some of you know that. We had one television in the house, four channels. If you wanted to watch television, you had to be in that room. If you wanted to watch television in the evening, you better hope the president was not on because he was on all four channels. President's on. We're going to miss Little House on the Prairie. Everybody had to be in the same room watching the same thing. Uh, think for a minute here. If, is, is Christ at home in the TV room of your heart? What's on the screen of your imagination? What's uh, playing on your dreams channel? Your hope station? When you're not thinking about anything else, does your mind drift towards sinful cravings and desires and thoughts? Is Christ at home in your heart? This is why Christ being at home in your heart takes the presence of the Spirit and the supernatural power of God because by yourself you are hopeless in this regard. Christ naturally is not just, not only is He not at home in your heart, you are completely alienated from Him. Every heart in which Christ is not welcome is the object of His horrible, exacting wrath. We are by nature objects of wrath. And someday Christ is going to come and He's going to destroy those who live lives that are dominated by cravings of the sinful nature. I saw a story not too long ago, this past week, about Tiger Woods' wife. Tiger Woods' wife was not at home with him and his behavior, and she should not have been. She recently bought a house. She paid $12 million for this house, and the first thing she did was destroy it. She completely leveled it. I'm not sure why. I didn't ask her. The story didn't go into details. I don't, the layout wasn't appropriate. The, the bathrooms weren't in the right place. The living room wasn't big enough. I don't know. She destroyed. She's spending Tiger Woods' money, so she leveled the house. Imagine Christ's response. This, this woman doesn't like the house because of its layout or because of how it faces the street. Imagine Christ's response when he comes to the home of hearts that are in rebellion against him and how much more his wrath will be laid at their feet. Today, though, that day is coming. Today, though, the Bible says that Christ will transform hearts. Christ has removed the sentence of death that we all had because of our rebellion against God. He paid the penalty for the sin that we owed. He died on the cross for all who turned to Him by faith. Trusting in what He has done on the cross is the necessary and sufficient payment for sin. And when you cross the line of faith, the renovations of your heart begin. It's when God's power gets unleashed in your life. You become a follower of Jesus Christ and Christ begins to change your heart. And when Christ dwells in your heart, it's the beginning of the development of your love for those for whom Christ is also at home. 
I want to finish this morning by, by suggesting briefly two ways in which Christ will be at home in your heart. We're going to unpack this for the next several months. We're going to talk about how this love is to manifest itself in the church. But I just want to mention a couple of things, uh, two signs in your life that you're growing in this type of love. First, you can tell that you're growing in this type of love if your life trades in repentance and forgiveness. If your life trades, if, if the currency of your life and your relationships is love and forgiveness. This is where love transcends being nice, where it transcends just being polite. Uh, every year on Christmas Day, the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth, gives a speech. She gives a short, inspirational message to the citizens of, of Great Britain. It's the only speech that she writes by herself without consulting the government. And I, frankly, I don't normally watch or listen to the Queen's Christmas Day speech, but somebody recommended it. So listen to what she said. Finding hope in adversity is... I, I can't do it in a British accent. You're just going to have to imagine. Finding hope in adversity is one of the themes of Christmas. Jesus was born into a world full of fear. The angels came to frighten shepherds with hope in their voices. Fear not, they urged. We bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, she says. Although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a savior with the power to forgive. Forgiveness lies at the heart of the Christian faith. It can heal broken families, it can restore friendships, and it can reconcile divided communities. It is in forgiveness that we feel the power of God's love. Not too bad. The Bible draws the same line between God's love and forgiveness. And you cannot claim to have a vital connection to the love of God without a life where the currency is not repentance and forgiveness. We talk about forgiveness a lot. I know that. It's a huge challenge. But what about repentance? When was the last time that you asked somebody with whom you are in a relationship to forgive you? I'm sorry. I blew it. Will you forgive me? If you haven't, or if you can't remember when, it may be because your love is not real love. Or it may be because you've so isolated yourself from other people that your interaction doesn't produce enough reality to warrant genuine confession and forgiveness. But real love, real Christian love, is robust enough to be close enough that, that when sin interrupts, it, it, it offers it offers confessions, it asks for forgiveness. Second, you can tell if you're growing in love if your friendships are deepening. If your friendships are deepening. This week I read an article by Noelle Piper. Noelle Piper is the wife of John Piper and she writes about how she finally learned the lessons of developing friendship at age 60. She was seeing a counselor and he said to her one day in counseling, he said, um, I would like you to bring, do you have four or five friends that you, you talk about your life? And she said, she looked at him and she smiled and nodded thinking to herself, no, not really. And he said, well, um, I want you to bring four or five friends with you to our next session and we're going to include them in the wisdom that we're seeking for the problems that you're having in life. 
She wanted to do it. She listened. She listened. She went home that afternoon and she emailed four or five women. She, she said, basically, I wrote them this message that said, my life is a mess. Uh, would you help me? Um, I know you're really busy. And so if you don't want to, she's giving them every excuse, right? I know you're really busy and you have a lot going on, but if you can do this, I'd appreciate it. She said, to my horror, all of them wrote back and said, we don't have everything figured out, but we'll come. Listen to what she writes. I'm going to read. In that session and in the days to come, as these friends opened themselves to me, my heart warmed to them and I felt more and more freedom with them. We came to trust each other with the tender places of, their, of our hearts. God showed himself in the deep wisdom that sprang from their lives' stories of widowhood, life-threatening disease, physical disability, and victory over severe obesity. I was 60 years old when this story began, when I was forced to have friends. I am ashamed that until then I could have remained so ignorant of what God intended friendship to be. At the same time, I'm filled with gratitude that God didn't leave me alone. She was 60 years old, which is good news. It's good news for you. If you're below that line, that number in your life, that means uh, that you, you now can learn from her the wisdom uh, of someone who's, who's farther along, that, that you won't make this same mistake that she did. And if you're at that number or higher, this is good news for you too, because it's proof that you can change at the stage in which you find yourself in these deepening friendships. I think there's a danger for those who find themselves at this stage, this middle stage of life. It's the danger of isolating yourself. And you can isolate yourself for good reasons. You can do it because you have grandchildren and you spend all your time now playing Candyland and checkers and you don't have time for friends. That's a good reason, right? You can do it because you can isolate yourself because you have more free time and more disposable income. And when you were young and poor, all you could do was call friends to play games. But now you can indulge your hobbies and you can go on your trips and and you, you don't need or don't have the time to cultivate friends anymore. Maybe you have had some experiences where relationships have soured, so you, you pull back. But Christian love that is rooted in God himself doesn't shrink back. It pushes forward. It goes deeper into fuller friendship. Our time this morning is gone. We're not finished with this topic, though. Um, Over the next few weeks, I want, by God's Spirit, your eyes to be opened so that you begin to see people around you with new eyes because everyone you see in this room as you leave is someone that God has called you to show deep, real, trinity love to. Love that's rooted in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we confess that this challenge that you lay before us in the book of Ephesians is way beyond us. Uh, You you want us to love one another with with this robust, uh, forgiving, faithful love. And Father, we confess this morning that we find it easier to annoy one another or, or gossip about each other, or uh, ignore one another than to love one another. It, it's easier for us to do. 
We're grateful to you, though, that you have called us that we swim in the ocean of the love of God, this deep, high, wide, long love manifested for us most supremely by Jesus Christ on the cross when he died for us. Father, we ask you this morning that you would change us for the grace that is here in the warmth and welcome we give you thanks. But, oh God, we pray, our desire is that we would love like Christ loved. That you would change us. That you would uh, uh, point out in our lives areas in which from which we need to turn, uh, ways in which we can ask forgiveness, faithfulness that we can extend, grace that we can pour into one another. Help us, help us, we pray. We're grateful to you for the power of the Spirit, his presence in us, that strength, who strengthens us to fulfill your commands. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.